Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Endurance Innovation. Uh, on today's show, we are happy to welcome back Paul Larson, who spoke with us um, probably four or five episodes back now by the time this is released, about high-intensity inter- high interval training. And today, Paul is back to talk about one of his other interests, and uh, one that I know my, my co-host is very keen <laughs> to, to dive into, and that, of course, is um, uh, thermal stress management in endurance sport. Paul, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me here, Michael. So this, uh, this topic here is something that I've wanted to cover for so long and just kind of had to hold off on because we didn't have a, a great forum for it. But um, now that we've got Paul back, um, it, it's going to be a fantastic discussion because I think the, the background you have, Paul, is more on the physiology and the result of it. And where my experience comes in is the um, how to actually get rid of the heat in some ways. So I think it's going to be a really cool discussion. I'm super excited about it. And in case anyone forgot, both Andrew and I did our, well, Andrew, I think, did his PhD on this, and I did my undergrad, both in uh, in uh, thermodynamics and heat transfer and engineering. So this is a, uh, this is a fairly um, um, nerdy group that you, you guys are having <laughs> to talk to you today. In a good way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, I, I, yeah, I like, I like how, where this is kind of shaping up, because you guys are the experts on the, on the real physics of everything here. Uh, and then, you know, my skill set is really more looking at the human, the human side of it. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a good discussion. Great. So w- the way that we were thinking about, about handling this is, uh, is really starting at the very beginning. It would be, I think, a mistake for us to assume that uh, everyone knows all the ins and outs of, uh, of this discussion. Otherwise, then what's the point of even having it? So we're going to start with some, uh, some basics uh, and an understanding of uh, what it is that uh, that causes humans to overheat, uh, especially when we're uh, training and racing in endurance sport. And uh, from there, we're going to talk about why that's a problem. So what are some of the effects of, of overheating? And then, you know, what everyone probably is tuning in to hear, what are the solutions? Like, what can we do to manage that thermal load? And uh, what's practical? What's less practical? You know, and we're going to give our, our recommendations and our thoughts about what we think the best way forward is. Yeah, sounds good. Let's start at uh, what it is that, that causes us to overheat. And Andrew and I did a little bit of a discussion of this in our um, in our first thermal episode way back when, which we'll link to, but uh, I'm going to open it up to Paul now to talk about uh, you know his understanding of what of what it is that that happens inside our bodies and outside of our bodies that uh, that creates this the need for this conversation in the first place. Yeah, sounds good. So I'll give I'll give you my take on it, and uh, ultimately it comes down to you know the fact that um, you know there's this heat that we can be gained and there's this heat that can be lost and we need to be in some sort of a, uh, a balance of this heat uh, level in our body just for things to, to work right. So again, if we go from the physiological standpoint, we need to be within a, a certain limit or an equilibrium of our heat. And of course, humans sit around 37.1, 37.3 degrees Celsius 
or um, and that needs to be maintained within quite a tight uh, bandwidth in order for physiology to to work, in order for cells to survive and function. Um, and look to as as one as one example, if we just move the the thermometer up through uh, six degrees to forty three degrees Celsius, well, the actual protein that is made that is all over our body that's making up all of our tissues it actually starts to unravel or denature so that just i think highlights the problem first and foremost if we go to 40 if we only go up six degrees celsius you know we can all handle that in our house right if you turn up the the thermometer in the house or the thermostat in your house six degrees no problem could be could be really good but if you do that in your body you're, you're dead so we've got to have real uh, good mechanisms around to keep things within a tight bandwidth. And yeah, because of course we know that there's, there's means of gaining heat and there's means of losing heat. So the key thing I think that is, that is causing for our, like a, an overall gain of, of body heat is, is, pro, is our metabolism. So our, like when, energy is being produced it's very inefficient and it's that's a that's turned out to be kind of a good thing so i think it's you know in general we're only like 20 percent efficient right so 20 percent of the energy that is being processed to give us and um sorry any 20 percent of the food that is being combusted and burnt in our cells is going in the uh, out into the form of of energy that can be that is doing sort of you know mechanical work or self functions and 80 percent of the you know the balance of that of that energy is going out in the form of heat which is of course keeping our cells warm and then they're functioning um you know accordingly but of course you know now you take the the whole uh issue with exercise of course your metabolism ramps up and now all of a sudden you know that um you know, we're, we're creating sort of a problem because now that 80% of every, you know, uh, bit of energy that is going into the form of energy that's going to be used for locomotion is now kind of coming out as the form of heat. And this is why we, we heat or warm up when we exercise. So we've got to have means or mechanisms in our body to be able to get rid of that. And of course, we we do, and and in the in a thermal neutral, or, you know, a, a standard room temperature kind of scenario, um, we've got that. We've got that in the form of, uh, you know, there's there's four means that we can kind of get rid of heat. So we can radiate heat to one another. We can conduct heat into the the chair. I might, you know, you might be sitting on, or you could uh, convect heat around the room. And of course, when in the context of exercise, one of the key ones we can get rid of heat is the process of evaporation. And I guess the final piece of the puzzle to close the loop on the, all of this is that now when we've got, there's one other way means that we can gain heat into the body and that is the environment. And when we go to places like Kona, uh, Hawaii, um, now we've got a, a radiative heat that's coming into the body too. So now you add exercise and the radiative heat, and now you've got a, a real massive increase in load, uh, heat load, and you've got a further problem because you can't evaporate the heat as much. So 
long-winded introduction there, but I'll throw it back to you guys and you guys can fill in any of the gaps I may have missed. No, I think that was an excellent explanation. And one idea that, or one thought that kind of came up while you're talking about that was uh, just comparing warm-blooded animals versus cold-blooded and how our thermal regulation for warm-blooded is so much more refined or um, tightly controlled anyway, because cold-blooded, if you sit, or well, not you, but uh, if a snake, for example, is to sit in the sun, it will heat up and the metabolism increases. Um, And likewise, if it uh, hibernates, then it requires almost no food, but with warm-blooded animals like humans, um, you know, it's, uh, it has to be so much more tightly controlled. So we have to develop these mechanisms you mentioned, like sweating. Um, but what, what's really cool from an evolutionary standpoint is how some animals don't sweat and how that actually limits their aerobic capacity, um, or maybe not aerobic capacity, but just capacity to do longer term work. Um, so anyway, just a quick observation. Yeah, I I actually, that's one of my favorite uh, physiological stories or evolutionary stories is the fact that, you know, when we came down from the trees, as the story goes, and um, our key, key, like one of the key means that we were able to evolve to to hunt uh, animals and, you know, basically beat them out uh, is, the, is this process of sweat evaporation. I think we're only one of four animals that evolved the mechanism of sweating. And I think the other ones is the horse, the mule, maybe the donkey. Like, like we're, it's, we're in a, a real elite class that can actually only sweat evaporate from the skin. Like you like compare that to a dog, you'll, you'll notice if you've got a dog that dog and you take them out in a hot environment, they'll be panting like mad. Right. And then you can kill your, you can kill your dog. Um, if you over, you know, just by overheating them, um, because they just can't get rid of heat the same way. Now we, we evolved that. And that, you know, is one of the key mechanisms that allowed us to rule the world, so to speak. Um, and you know, capture our prey when they were, they were running for shelter and we just, we, we outlast them in the, in the heat of the Sahara. So yeah, I love I love that story, and again, just such an important one, and it also highlights the key importance of facilitating the process of sweat evaporation. That is the main mean we can we can we can get rid of heat, and we can go back to that later on. Yeah, we're, we're we we might have some extra things to add to that sweat evaporation when we talk about our. Uh, our strategies for dealing with it. But um, I do want to mention one thing, and I think it's, um, and this is a a helpful, I think, way of thinking about heat transfer for us humans, and especially when we're doing uh, endurance activities. And I think we mentioned it, we introduced it, Andrew and I, when we talked, uh, when we did our last episode on heat transfer, and that's this this bucket analogy, where if you think of your your body as as a bucket and it's filling up with, this, you know, well, fluid, not fluid called heat. Um, and anything that adding to the bucket are, as Paul mentioned, um, heat that comes from me- your metabolism. And obviously, the more the harder you're working, the, the greater that rate of filling up the bucket from the metabolism is, and also coming in from the environment, like radiative heat transfer from, um, you know, from the sun or from really hot rocks. Uh, like in Kona, and then emptying the bucket are all of those means of uh, of heat loss. So evaporative, as um, as Paul just mentioned, being probably the greatest one, and then the, some some uh, convective heat transfer is also not trivial. Uh, conductive and radiative are probably quite small, 
um, but the but sweat uh, evaporative heat transfer and convective heat transfer are quite large. So if your bucket fills up, you got to slow down. You know, your 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 body will make you stop, or or at least drastically reduce the your ability to perform at the same workload. Um, but if you can keep the bucket, you know, from overflowing through whatever it is you're doing, then you're you're kind of doing the right thing. An interesting recent example of what I would say is the bucket overflowing is actually Sarah True. Um, she's had some incidents recently where she's her body may not be able to throttle itself very well. So she's able to push right to the limit where basically large physiological changes start happening, like passing out a couple hundred meters from the finish line in an Ironman. Uh, and I think that was Frankfurt possibly, but um, she's had a lot of instances like that. So it does show you that at some point, even though your body's trying to protect itself, if you push through that, something bad will happen. Yeah. How about uh, the Johnny Johnny Brownlee one in yes. uh, forget yeah. which ITU? I think it was a one one of the world champs one where Ali basically pushes him over the line, right? But he's yep. like 200, 200 you know meters from the line, and he's it was just absolutely ugly, right? He's all over the map, and these guys are right up in podium positions, right? <laughs> it's just crazy. And it, it does illustrate what professional athletes are either willing or able to do that might be beyond what normal people would uh, would be able to push themselves to do. Totally. So there's certain conditions that seem to trigger this. So we talked about evaporative sweat loss and like heat and radiation reflecting off off of the uh, the environment. But what would you isolate in your experience, Paul, for being the main contributing factors to overheating? Well. Uh... It's certainly the conditions. I mean, it's just really a combination of, um, you know, and it, it's just as we've been discussing, it's the factors that, that, that you're, you're exercising in the heat sometimes and you're, you know, we're, we're typically very motivated and it's this perfect storm, I guess, of, of motivation, uh, metabolism, and then this environment that's not permitting for the heat uh, you know, dissipation or, or yeah, heat alleviation from, from the body. So, and, you know, humidity is one of the big ones, right? We just, we've been speaking about, uh, sweat evaporation as the key process of, um, of heat dissipation in the body. But remember that when we go into humid environments, we lose, a, a um, a certain level of the ability to, to sweat evaporate so it's no longer evaporating it might be dripping from your skin but it's completely it's almost irrelevant right like you're not losing heat if the sweat is just dripping off your skin you're only losing the heat if you get phase change occurring where the liquid water on your skin is turning to liquid gas is turning to gas and that's only if the water pressure in the environment is too is too heavy is too high and that just doesn't occur. That's that's high humidity. So, uh, yeah, it's it's the it, and of course, what's going on in the body is, is we're getting a rise in is in overall body temperature. You know, we can call that core temperature, or we can call that body temperature. But overall, something's going on where the overall uh, human body is is gaining heat because it's no longer able to get rid of it. Right, so it's building up. It builds up mostly in the core itself, like the center of the of the body. And it, you know, we in the laboratory we typically measure the center as your rectum, right? So that we do a rectal temperature, or we can do an esophageal temperature, or we can do 
you can swallow, um, you know, pills now to, to get, to get insight into, you know, what around what the temperature is in the center of the body. And we know that that gets quite high in these sorts of sorts of circumstances. Uh, however you, however you skin it, ultimately there's a bunch of neural afferents. So these are, you know, nerves that are going back to the brain where this coordination, um, in the, in the brain or the mind is telling us to stop or slow down, or, or you're going to kill yourself or at least, you know, get, get to the level that we've seen, you know, Sarah True, Johnny Brownlee, name your, name your individual that's, that's had this, but, but yeah, you know, typically, um, uh, your motor output is diminished before you reach that as a safety mechanism to, um, allow the individual to survive. Can you draw any generalizations about the athlete knowing uh, some you know, physiological uh, information about the athlete and their susceptibility to, to overheating? And specifically here, I mean, uh, I'll clarify a little bit. I mean, um, athlete size and maybe athlete power. I'm just generalizing, but I, I, and there is some science on this. And unfortunately, it's not at the tip of my brain, but the... the smaller athletes tend to be better in the heat than larger athletes if we are to generalize and that is due to a it's like a body mass to surface area ratio uh, is is somehow perturbed and advantaged for the smaller individual and there's been some good science sort of explaining why that is but that's just a generalization and i mean and if i'm just eyeballing certain um, certain races, I mean, Ferdino might be, a um, uh, against this cause he's a pretty tall athlete, but, but in generally we, we see a lot of smaller athletes, smaller runners, for example, that are, are very, very good in the heat versus the bigger, larger athletes having a, a more of a, more of a challenge. Uh, but that's what, yeah, was that way kind of what you were alluding to? Yeah, that's that's where I was. That's where I was going. Just from you know, if you if you looked at it from a strictly a pure um, uh, heat transfer problem, exactly the volume, the surface area it, that you brought up is uh, is would would you know would slow down heat loss to the environment for a larger body simply because a larger body has a higher uh, a higher volume to surface area ratio. Yeah, that's what I was driving. <laughs> I can confirm as a high volume to surface area person. <laughs> that's that's, that's going to be how we're going to be how how that's going to be the new PC way of describing larger folks is like your your high volume to surface area yes. individual. Because <laughs> you were just in you were just in Cozumel, weren't you, Andrew? How is oh is that, is that we don't do we not want to know it? Do we need to edit that out? Uh, no, actually, it's uh, very relevant. Um, so, yeah, my, my personal story there, just to take a little bit of a tangent, is the the race started out. So the, the days leading up to the race were actually quite comfortable. It was about 27 degrees, not super humid. The day of the race, it, it was about three degrees hotter and water temperature was around 30 degrees. So this actually, I think, ties in as a good case study because there's a lot of points that uh, relating to filling the bucket that we can look at. So... In the swim, um, assuming you're generating about the same amount of uh, work, um, so just metabolic output, 
there's typically very high heat transfer, which is why water when it's maybe 15 degrees is enough to cause hypothermia. But when you're looking at air temperature that's 15 degrees, uh, well, you could run around naked for quite a while without being too uncomfortable. Uh, the people around you might be uncomfortable, but that's different. Um, but with, with water, when it's um, like you get this high heat transfer coefficient, but uh, it's it also insulates you to some extent. So swimming in warm water, it just doesn't give you that temperature difference that drives the heat transfer. So 30 degree water, um, high output. And at the end of the swim, I was already starting to feel quite warm, mm. which is not something I'm used mm. to. Um, but anyway, I, I got out and kept running. Immediately on the bike, um, I noticed that my heart rate was high, uh, my respiration rate was pretty high, and my power was low. So those are all bad signs. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so it was just from that point on, it was just a struggle. And I ended up with what uh, I guess is self-diagnosed um, early stages of heat stroke. But uh, after about 90K, um, I started essentially vomiting on the side of the course. Um, and then I was just losing focus. Like I couldn't really go straight anymore. Mm. And, uh, so it was just, it was a miserable day for me. Mm. And, um, I was feeling not terrible up to that point, but it just kept going where my heart rate wouldn't decrease. And there were a couple contributing factors, but, uh, my heart rate wouldn't decrease. Uh, my power up- output kept dropping and it just kept getting worse and worse until it got to the point where I was just kind of soft pedaling, but, uh, that was all I could do. Mm. So I, I packed it in. It was a DNF, which I'm you know, it's emotionally very difficult, but, uh, ultimately I think it was the right decision because it was probably unsafe to continue, but it's something that still bothers me, but Mm -hmm. knowing, you know, what the alternative could have been, it definitely was the right choice, especially because I wasn't competing for money or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our analogy, um, I think what I was doing is kind of pre-filling the bucket with body heat. Um, so offsetting that initial core body temperature, And then we just, the hole, the drain hole in the bucket was too small. So I just got to the point where it was uh, full. And instead of overflowing, I just reduced how much heat was trickling in by decreasing my power output until it got to the point where, you know, the the bucket was full, couldn't really do much about it. And my body just started to not react properly. So that was, that was my experience. So kind of a frustrating story, but I know it's happened to lots of people. Oh, for sure. It's so, it's so, it's so common. It's happened to me. Uh, and I think you, you described exactly, uh, you know, perfect case study to, to the problem that we're, we're all discussing here. So yeah, your, your bucket got too full. Maybe the, you know, almost uh, begs the question, well, what can we, what could you have done different or what could, what can everyone do a little bit mm-hmm. more to kind of, uh, combat these, the filling of the bucket or, um, or the, you know, the, bailing the bucket ultimately right so this ties directly into your research now paul like we've been talking more theoretically before but uh, a lot of your publications have actually centered around how do we either pre-cool or manage cooling for someone who's who's either preparing or undergoing exercise um so if you want to do maybe just a quick synopsis of some of the different things you've looked at then we can maybe dive a little bit deeper into each of the solutions you've come up with yeah, that's great. Uh, so this problem has been dealt with for a long time, and it for me it started back in two thousand and four when I was at the University of Ballarat in Australia, and I was starting my first project with 
uh, a famous sports scientist, Dr. David Martin from the AIS. And he came to me in 2003 and said, or so yeah, 2000 and yes, 2003. And he said, you know, we've got big games coming up in Athens. It's going to be very hot. We need to um, we need to work on procedures to prequel. And it was my first introduction to the problem. And we were looking at the map, the best way to to prequel an athlete practically before they they did the time trial. Um, the you know I think it was a 50k time trial. We we're working with Michael Rogers, who's a Tour de France cyclist, and he was the representative for the time trial. And we were trying to optimize his pre-cooling technique so we could kind of start with ultimately a larger bucket that we knew we were going to fill before he reached his um, his critical core temperature and that bucket was was overfilled. And there were lots of different ways. We were looking at, you know, ice vests, ice jackets. We were looking at cold water immersion baths, combining the two. And that's that's sort of where we started. And we did look at a um, – we, we – you know, we started there and we found that like a cold bath to slowly lower the core temperature and then maintaining that with an ice jacket on the way to, um, on the way to the, to the event was going to be the best means. And, um, you know, we did that and, you know, Michael's obviously a very talented rider, but he did, he got a bronze medal for that, that event. And then the next games, we continued that research. And this is in that next period of time, we, what, what came to the forefront was, the you know, there was the almost the discovery that we could use ice slushy as a means of pre-cooling the body and that that might form an even more practical method so that was really the next and that was the beijing games obviously a very another really hot hot event so we did more research on ice slushy and the optimal ways that we could use that to pre-cool the body and that we should also just pause for a moment and try to understand why ice slushy is uh, a good means of, of, of cooling the body. And the reason this, it really kind of comes out to the fact that ice slushy, or ice like a Slurpee, is a mix of ice and water. So it's, you know, it's obviously it's easy to drink, especially on a nice warm day. And the, the pieces of, uh, the, the components of the ice slushy that are of the real advantage is the ice particles. And, we have to go to, uh, you know, appreciating phase change and the fact that when that ice slushy is ingested, it and and you know it hits the skin, I guess, of of the or the the mucous membranes of the, um, you know, the the part that's being ingested. Well, that's in order to change that temperature to the liquid water, we're actually we're requiring more heat and energy than if it were if the water was just you know, in a liquid form already. So it's for those ice particles to change to a liquid, um, liquid, um, liquid form, liquid phase, there's a, a greater heat amount that kind of comes out uh, it to, to allow, allow for that to happen. And that gets taken away from your core, bo- your core body temperature. And in the, I guess our very first study that we did with Rod Siegel, whose nickname became the slush and his research basically showed that um, we could drop the core body temperature by almost half a degree uh, is compared to like a similar uh, temperature uh, uh, pre-ingested liquid. So the liquid, and in this study, uh, I think I I sent it to you guys, it was basically the the control liquid was 
was um, four degrees Celsius, and the ice uh, compared that to the ice slushy that had that mix of ice and water at minus one degree Celsius. And you ingested basically 500 mils of either the liquid or the ice slushy, and you got over 30 minute period, you got a drop in core temperature of about half a degree. So that's your, you know, you're creating ultimately a a better, a bigger bucket to begin anything, um, you know, uh, exercise kind of related. So that was really the first, that was the the advance in the pre-cooling study. And, we, and again, we use that, you know, in Australia for, and, and many other uh, countries use that as well in Beijing for the first time to pre-cool their athletes before performing in, yeah, hot Beijing temperatures. I absolutely love this as a solution because you're taking advantage of something that's needed anyway with the hydration and you're piggybacking energy storage on top of it. So it's really, it's the perfect solution. As long as you can provide the slushy to the athlete, there's not really a downside except for maybe brain freeze. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what we feel too. Like there's just, because most athletes are going to prehydrate. at least, you know, you don't have to. I'm not talking about hyperhydrating, but you're going to have something. I mean, I don't, I think, I don't think there's an athlete out there that's lining up for a hot event. It's not going to be drinking a little bit on the way to the event so that they kind of start, you know, hydrated to begin with. So why not have it in a nice slushy format so that you can kind of, um, drop some body heat and make a larger bucket to, to start the race. So yeah, that's where it, that's where it began. So having slushies obviously is uh, is a real you know is a real advantage, but it does present some logistical challenges because of course you know especially if you're talking about using them in hot events, uh, your ambient temperature is hot, ice is cold, ice is going to melt in that bottle. How do you? Uh, what are some of the strategies for making sure that your your slushy stays a slushy as opposed to just a cool beverage by the time you want to drink it? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for the segue. <laughs> but basically, yeah, we found that <laughs> we found that was obviously the problem. And so I, this this came to the next step in my own journey. So I I was really fortunate to pick up a job in New Zealand uh, after this to lead the, the physiology team that was supporting the New Zealand Olympic program, and that was in two thousand and nine. And the first thing they told me when I got to New Zealand. And we're just building the team. They said, Paul, you got to innovate, <laughs> do something innovative. Didn't really, there's no really specific So I, you know, you, you, you take that and your brain works around. And, and I thought, well, we've got to, we've, we've got to take this uh, concept that we learned from Beijing and we've got to apply this practically for athletes that are racing in the heat. Well, well, you know, and I was the sport that I was assigned to was the sport of triathlon. I kind of thought, well, why don't we use ice slushy, like almost pre-cooled during the bike phase? So we were, um, I thought, okay, well, let's just make sure that we've got a bottle that can use ice slushy during the bike phase so we can pre-cool then make a bigger bucket for the run and that. But then when I was looking for bottles out there that could do this, there were some that could keep things or claim to keep things cool, but there was there, none that had actually like a spout that allowed for the uh, um, for ice slushy to be uh, output, and it would just be the, the the spouts were too too small. So I needed to. So we, yeah, we ultimately we we innovated, and it was a university um, project. A, a bunch of mechanical engineers um, came up with the what is now the flow bottle, uh, and good people those mechanical engineers. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fantastic. <laughs> 
Unbiased. Yeah, it was awesome. It was a fourth year, a fourth year um, mechanical engineering project, and the the, uh, the team there was about uh, five on the team, and they just they they rocked the project. It was really really cool to see uh, all the testing and whatnot that they did. But it wound up coming up to where we had a, a silicone outer bottle and a um, and a larger spout, and this is now you can purchase this as a as a flow bottle. And you just go to flowbottle.com. Flow is F O F L O E. And it's, yeah, it's like a silicone, uh, silicone based bottle so that you can kind of like grip and squeeze the bottle so that your ice slushy comes out of the larger spout that's at the top. And yeah, this is, this is, um, this, you can, what, what it's wound up forming is a practical medium to use it anywhere else. So you can use it in like, like in your pre-cooling. So you could, you could use it in, um, to, as you, you know, take it to the race and like, you know, in, you know, Andrew could have some ice slushy before he, he starts his hot swim, for example. Um, and you could even, you, you can also have it, you know, in a bike cage, um, you know, to, to actually have during the, the bike phase or handed to you during, during a hot run, for example, too. It's just a good means of getting rid of the, or getting that ice slushy. Of course, you got to make it and there's some other practical challenges there, but, uh, the possibility to innovate and, and, get a colder fluid than you typically get on the course is is out there. What I've kind of joked about a little bit before, but I think would actually serve a practical purpose is at hotter races, if um, event organizers actually handed out a slushy or had slushy machines um, at some of the aid stations, because there there have been lots of documented cases of, uh, of overheating, like heat stroke or hyperthermia. And it, it could help mitigate some of that, but it could also enhance the performance of people. Um, so I think that'd be a fantastic solution. I don't know that it's quite practical yet, but I would love to see something like that. Yeah, race directors, if you're listening, I this, agree. Is, this is how you get a leg up on your competition. <laughs> if you've got a race that's in the you know, hotter part of the world or in hotter months uh, and you offer people slushy machines at aid stations, I will personally guarantee that you're going to get an influx of participants. Especially me. Especially Andrew. Yes, Andrew will be the cheerleader. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we've used them in the New Zealand program for ages. Yeah, the feedback is all, obviously awesome. The, the, you know, I, the athletes love the ice slushy, especially in those hot conditions. Who, would, who wouldn't want a, a drop in, you know, thermal, thermal comfort to, yeah, allow for that, that performance to improve? And the, the bottle design, like getting the actual ice particles out, that's the biggest challenge because I've played around with this with traditional bottles, like you mentioned, and all you do is end up squeezing out cold liquid, which is useful, but it's kind of like the control in your previous study where there was an additional half degree of core body temperature that you could drop essentially by getting that ice and, and having the phase change occur inside of you rather than having external air heat up the ice and then cause that phase change. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I, I was actually a subject in that study that um, Rod Siegel did. And I can, you know, there's no blinding that's allowed. You know, when you're ingesting the ice slushy, but <laughs> blinding or you know, non-blinded or not, you just, you know, you, you run about an extra 10 minutes longer to exhaustion in the heat you totally feel that you're cooler. I mean, it, the, the, re, the, re, like it's 10, we had 10 subjects in the study, but it's 10 out of 10. You can just see the, the, like everyone gets a consistent response in terms of the drop of the core temperature and then, and the, you know, the perception of, uh, of being, being cooler is consistent and the feeling of exercise is lower right across as well. 
So it's, yeah, it was a really, it was a, it was a nice study. And we were, the, I guess the, the other interesting finding from that study, if I go back, was the, the fact that um, in all 10 subjects, the core, te- not the core, well, the, the rectal temperature was higher in the ice slushy trial compared to the um, cold liquid trial. Now, why do you think that might be? Why was the rectal temperature higher, like almost by you know, it was 0.3, 0.4 degrees Celsius? I got the paper here. I'll check it. But why do you think the rectal temperature was higher after um, the ice slushy trial? That, 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 that blew us away. That is, yeah, that's an interesting result. <laughs> My guess would be is that it's a, it would be a, a perception thing that if you are able to, if you, um, if the athlete that you were studying felt cooler, then they could do more work and then they could, you know, in the end, increase their core temperature more. I've seen studies where that perception of, of temperature were things like people manipulated, you know, the readouts of, of thermostats to read hotter or cooler would affect, um, you know, time to exhaustion performance. So that would be my guess that it was, you know, you ingest this this cold fluid, it, it would cool your your mouth and throat. And then perhaps it was a, a more of a psychological effect that then would allow you to do more work, thereby increasing core body temperature. You got it. That's what I would believe is happening as well. So these guys are running 10 minutes longer. So there's 10 more minutes of, right. of, of metabolism that's involved. Don't forget also that we're, we're measuring the heat, the core temperature at the rectum. And I, again, this was kind of where I really started to believe it's, it's all about brain temperature more. Brain temperature or you know, regions around the brain are going to be more influential in, in dictating um, you know, motor output compared to anything that's quite a central core body. Um, you know, again, you, know, you can't actually put a, a temperature probe into the brain of this, but again, we're just, you know, based on the data, that's what I was kind of guessing is kind of going like, my guess is that everyone's kind of stops at the same brain temperature or thereabouts, but the, the core temperature can be completely, completely different um, in that, in that scenario as it was here. Or some or some other part of the body, right? I think Andrew, you and I talked about this yeah. that there was some region. You know, I think I remember the the Canadian Department of Defense was doing research where they had uh, some you know classified part of the body. As long as they kept that part warm, then then people would have better blood flow to their fingers, so they could operate equipment or weaponry. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I wonder yeah, if it it's was, uh, not if maybe that that region is not in your rectum. It's just it just happens to be somewhere else. <laughs> that I, I think a lot of people would have trouble taking that seriously if they said, "Oh, just keep your rectum warm." <laughs> but there's uh, there there is research to show, and I can't remember the exact paper. But if you keep your core body temperature higher in cold conditions, you actually have impre- improved um, motor skill in your fingers. So most people would assume that having gloves on would be the biggest improvement, but actually keeping your core body temperature up there, um, you know, as long as you don't have frostbite on your fingers, but, uh, that is the biggest improvement. So, mm-hmm. um, so my guess actually for why that was happening was that your body was going to redirect some of the, the blood flow to other areas. So maybe, um, just through vasoconstriction, yeah. vasodilation, it was, um, rerouting the heat to where you just happen to be measuring temperature. Um, and mm-hmm. I did, I did notice a similar result uh, when I had done some of my own heat heat experimentation at the DRDC lab. 
Um, the core body temperature continued to increase after the exercise was done. Um, and I think the suspected cause was just the, your, um, you have a, a large gradient in your body and uh, it's kind of just normalizing or equalizing all through your body because uh, you're not producing the heat anymore, but it's just spreading out more evenly. Yeah. And when we had Steph Gaskell from Monash uh, to talk to us about what well, we're talking about FODMAP originally, but then we got into this amazing digression about, you know, heat training and, and just and, um, nutrient absorption and long endurance. Uh, one of the one of her points on why a GI function is impaired in long events or hot events is that diversion of blood flow. So, you know, the rectum is part of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, and if you're operating in the heat, certainly working to exhaustion, there's going to be very well, there's going to be reduced blood flow to the to the GI tract in those conditions. So it's entirely possible that um, that the rectum is not, you know, getting the the blood flow it would if your if your body was at rest. So there's one other interesting study, and I don't know if you've seen it, Paul, but it was from the World Championships in Qatar in 2016, um, and they instrumented a bunch of different cyclists. Uh, I forget which countries, but they gave them the the swallowable pills, and they recorded their temperature throughout the um, throughout the event. And what they found is the core body temperature. The, well, there was two really interesting. Uh, findings in the study, but the core body temperature was measured at up to, I think, 41.5 or 41.9 degrees Celsius, which is way above what you would expect for normal normal athletic or normal, at least, uh, conditions that you could be functional in. Um, but tying into what you had said about the brain temperature itself being potentially lower than your core body temperature, um, that was, I think, one of the assumptions was that... Uh, even though you've got locally higher temperatures, your brain is probably within the safe limits. Um, the other interesting finding is that I believe the men's team time trial had a slushy before the race, and like they were significantly lower, like way out of the um, statistical error range. And it was like one and a half to two degrees lower temperature. And yeah, they had the the team that won pre cooled themselves. So that's pretty cool finding about the slushies. That's neat. Yeah. I'm not sure which team that, what, what was the team out of interest? I don't recall. Um, we can post the paper in the show notes and I'll send it to you after the, uh, after the recording, Paul, but. Um, no, yeah. It's just like one of, yeah, there's a, one of the sports scientists um, works for, uh, he's worked for a couple, a couple of the, the Aussie um, uh, pro teams and whatnot. And he was yeah one, one of my PhD students in these, in these uh, types of experiments. So, and I've seen him on, you know, YouTubes and stuff working, working with the team with the ice slushy. Um, yeah. And there's a few, few pro teams that use, use our, our flow bottle as well. That's kind of cool. And it might've been them. So I wouldn't be surprised if you had some kind of connection just based on the science back there. So one other interesting aspect of this is the psychological impact um, so obviously there's some kind of placebo effect that can occur. And I think in one of your studies, you'd actually mentioned, um, I don't know if you did the study or someone else did, but, uh, ice rinsing where you just take the, the cool liquid or cool ice in your, your mouth and then spit it out and don't actually ingest it. Yeah, no, it wasn't, wasn't me. I think we reviewed the, like it was in our review and we were mentioning it. Uh, but no, it wasn't me that did the study. Um, yeah, there's, there, there has, has been a couple uh, and yeah, so from memory, the actual rinsing and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think the rinsing was as effective as actually sort of, sort of swallowing it. Um, 
think that you needed a little bit more to uh, like cooling power to get that psychological effect. But what did you, what did, what were you alluding to, Andrew? What were you think you were finding there? Well, I think it was that uh, in the mention, it was just there was a non-zero effect. So there was some effect through the brain there. Um, so just the mm-hmm. rate of perceived exertion decreases just when you feel cooler. Right. Well, definitely. So the, uh, and I like, so the one that Emil uh, in, so Emil's from, Emil Schultz from, the Netherlands was visiting me and he did that project. So he was, we didn't actually do a, a rinse. We actually were, we were ingesting in that study. So the, the one I sent you. So basically he was, we were, we were looking like at a thermal state you know, issues of thermal state versus thermal um, comfort. And there's this kind of these two concepts. I have a hard time getting my head around this, but the thermal state is actually like, you know, how, how cold you're actually sort of, are and the the thermal um uh the thermal comfort is is sort of how um you know more like how how cold you actually actually feel right so um so and basically the the study was manipulating um periods of like pre-cooling so we were actually like lowering the temperature with an ice vest and an ice slushy ingesting before compared to actually just um uh, you know, actually taking the ice, uh, like, like in a, in the form of like the flow bottle where you're just actually, actually, um, drinking it sort of during. And yeah, we were, we were finding that the, um, I guess the, the really just, um, almost the, the, the comfort level that you were getting from the ice slushy was just as important as, as being cold. So basically there was no difference from, just taking ice slushy during compared to actually going through a whole pre-cooling maneuver ultimately. And, and that was kind of what we were sort of alluding to. So, um, and, and yeah, I think, I think we did have some ice. Yeah. Sorry. It's kind of coming back now. Um, but yeah, like the, the actual, um, the fact that you have like a nice, uh, cold mouth and area around that is, is sort of just as important. It kind of goes back to this brain temperature stuff that we were talking about as actually your, your, your thermal state, um, you know, your, your whole body. So it's, our, our belief here from this data is that the, that, you know, that brain temperature and the psychological effect that you're talking about, um, your thermal comfort level is probably the most important thing when it comes down to, uh, to performance and motor output. So as an extension of that, I remember when we had Alan Hobd on the show and he was uh, talking about his last event at Norseman where it was atypically warm. And one of the things he did was he he carried ice cubes in his hands and he found that that was uh, a really uh, a good way to at least improve his, well, thermal comfort to borrow your term. I'm wondering too, if you, know, uh, if you didn't have slushies, if you just had your typical uh, long course aid stations, which had ice, if you could pop ice cubes into your mouth and keep ice cubes in your mouth, if that would, you know, I'm asking you to speculate now, Paul, but if that, if you think that that would have some useful effect on the, on your thermal comfort. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think it does. And a lot of the athletes that I work with uh, attempt both of those uh, maneuvers. So they use, so ice in the hands uh, and ice uh, crunching the ice that's at aid stations in the mouth as well to almost make their own ice slushy. So that is a that is a strategy that 
yeah, I recommend for some of my athletes. Again, we are all speculating. It's a very coachy prescription, <laughs> but and there's no hard data. But but I guess just when you know that your thermal perception is going to be key, then that's a good strategy to um, to use to to try to uh, you know affect your your thermal comfort. And I think too, um, again, from the psychological point of view, if you have ice in your hands um, and say your head's hot, you can kind of rub those ice cubes over your head and just cool, locally cool the the areas that are feeling uncomfortable, um, which I think whether or not that has a large impact on your core body temperature, I think it just feels good and would help you push that a little bit harder. Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. Yeah. So if you're wearing a hat, because sometimes the, the actual radiant heat is just, you know, crazy you could yeah you can put ice cubes in in your hat before it's on your um you know on your head so um yeah that can be that can be a good strategy as well and on another side of of looking at this you know from a psychological perspective but not the psychology of of feeling cool and and psychology of thermal comfort but i often find that um, and this is purely a personal experience that when i'm really hot it's it's almost like you know you get into this desperation phase where you feel like you know the world's against you and there's not much you can do about this really uncomfortable sensation of being hot and how you're slowing down and how, you know, the world's about to end. Uh, so having, having some kind of agency here is, is, uh, could be a very powerful, um, almost like a diversion tactic to not go down that dark road. So for instance, if you as an athlete are now armed with the, th- with the thought of, well, if I come upon an aid station that has ice, now I can, you know, grab a, a mitt full of ice and I can pop some in my mouth and maybe I can chew some of it and, and turn it into slushy and I can throw it down my, my jersey and I can put some under my hat. Now I have all of this stuff that all of these, you know, all of, all of, this, all of this actionable, you know, stuff that I can do that I can look forward to some relief from this discomfort that I feel. And I think that that is a really powerful um, psychological tool in that toolbox to to get you out of that funk that that often happens when you know your bucket is overflowing and perhaps you're not having the time of your life yeah i agree it's you know you got to have a plan going into these these crazy events right um especially when they're going to be going to be hot so yeah and you know from that confidence is is gonna is gonna come if you've got that got that plan so, um, cause yeah, you're, you, you know, you're going to come across those experiences. So yeah, when you're there, it's good to, good to have these go-tos. Um, yeah, we should, we should also talk about like the number one thing that is going to give us the confidence, uh, is the preparation in the heat itself. Like, you know, we are, and we haven't really spoken the fact that it's, uh, you know, before any of these interventions, comes into play and are useful it's the process of heat acclimation and the physiological adaptations that are occurring in the body that's the number one thing that's going to um, you know enhance an athlete's performance and you know again I'm, I'm very familiar with the the Kona athletes and the, and the pros there and we, we see all that I know going to hot locations before the the event um, you know, the, the, the key event to develop those adaptations that they need. And there's, there's many of them that we can go into, but, but yeah, like we should, we, you know, we could spend a bit of time on that too. So um, if anyone's ever looked into the plethora of, of options for heat adaptation, 
there are, you know, there are ones where they will advocate training in the heat or just spending time in the heat or um, training and then spending time in the heat, like in a sauna or a hot water bath. So if you can talk to a couple of uh, your favorite options, one or two that you've passed and you've seen good efficacy for. Yeah. So for sure, the... You know, it's it, it, training itself is, is key. We, we can't lose fact. We can't lose sight of the fact that the training we can't, you know, the training is going to be still the key process. We even get a little bit of a heat acclimation process, even in training in, in cool conditions. Right. So you're because, you you know, again, the metab- metabolism thing, you're, you're heating up. But then we, you know, we want to we want to take that to the next level. And many of the strategies we can use can include, like you know, covering with more clothing. We can use uh, exercise in heat chambers. So you know, if we have a hot room that we can actually exercise in, that can be effective and, and helpful. We can you know use some str- some strategies around our training sessions, so we could do the session as it's prescribed, get the exercise out of the way, but then immediately following that, we can we can go into a, a sauna or a jacuzzi, right. um, whatever it is. One of the key principles there is uh, time under a hot temperature, like time under high body heat because that starts the whole process of the heat acclimation, which tends to come from, you know, um, being hot and dehydrating. Those are kind of, I guess, two of the key things that's going on. So um, dehydrating itself, we're actually losing a certain amount of uh, of body water. So plasma volume, water component of your uh, cardiovascular system is, is, is diminishing and the kidney responds in return to... Uh, you know, number of different adaptations, but aldosterone is one of the key ones that comes in after one of the hormones that causes for more salt retention thereafter. And you get an expansion of your plasma volume. So, and that, you know, kicks off the cascade of the various adaptations. Um, you know, now you, all of a sudden, if you've got more water component uh, subsequently in your, in your bloodstream for, for subsequent sessions, well, now your, your stroke volume is higher, uh, heart rate is lower, uh, sweat rate is higher and and all these sorts of different uh, adaptations the other one even just being hot itself we spoke about the protein and the denaturing well the proteins actually uh, uh, start to get get a lot um, stronger around all of the uh, the various different cells of the body right so the, the heat shock protein is one of the key key proteins that cause it or that's involved at least in in terms of um, you know uh, changing the structures and developing resiliencies in all your proteins. So that's probably important as well. But, but yeah, there's loads of ways to kind of skin it, but either, you know, however you do it, you want to within that, you know, month or so before you want to be getting these types of heat exposures and uh, yeah, lots of different means, but yeah, that, that needs to be on the, uh, on the list for any athletes that are kind of going into these hot conditions, especially if they're coming from cold, colder conditions. Sure. So if I, uh, if I understand correctly, you, you don't necessarily advocate any one protocol versus another. You're just, uh, you just recommending that your folks spend as much time as they can at that elevated, uh, body temperature. Yeah. Yeah. So I, again, I would, in, in, in terms of my coaching hierarchy, I, I prioritize the training first and then 
the heat is sort of an, an, an add on to that after. So I'm never going to jeopardize my training of like a key set, for example. Sure. You know, yeah, like I'm not going to like, we have to be careful about doing hit sessions in the heat, for example, like hit, hit might be a, one of your key sets. Right. Uh, and you don't want to, now you add heat to that. Well, now you're adding, you're, you're diminishing your work output for that hit session probably. And, uh, yeah, so that's one of the things that we don't want to do. So we want to, um, but maybe after that hit session or another, you know, low intensity hot, you know, uh, session, you know, like an L two kind of session. Well, maybe you could do that one in a in a hot room or some sort. Um, and but with and with you know, it really comes becomes sort of very very coachy at that point of the time, and and you just need to sort of be creative with the whole process in terms of how you're going to get that piece of the puzzle into your into your program, but you want to be adding after the training is prioritized and this key and this key sets are done, where are the good spots where you can add time on, under hot conditions? So you can also get those additional adaptations that we just spoke on. In your experience, are some people more likely to respond to this? Um, I suspect I might be a non-responder, but uh, I'm just curious to get your opinion on that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah for sure. There's, there does seem to be like that phenotype that uh, goes really well in the heat, and those that uh, you know uh, that don't go as well. And I'm not sure if it's uh, you know I'm not sure if the the genetic streams that are that are better versus versus not as good. I think you know more the European uh, Northern Europeans in general can be, there can be some problematic ad- adapters in those sort of situations. Um, but it's, it's never, it's not a be all end all or anything, right? Like it's, it's, we're just so individual. You don't know what roll of the dice of, of genetic heat adaptation strain you kind of got, but. Excellent. Um, yeah. I mean, this has been, so interesting for me. Um, and aside from that, I've also filled up my excuse bank that, uh, you know, there's a genetic component and all these other things that, uh, that I have for hot weather excuses, but, uh, no, the science behind it is just absolutely fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into this a little bit more in the future, maybe more on my own research, but, um, yeah, just, uh, working with you as well, Paul, I think would be super interesting to develop some new technologies to help deal with this. Right. And then one thing that's, I think important for, for people to appreciate that you can, you can do all the right things, you know, you can be as, as heat adapted as your genetics allow, and then you can drink all the slushy drinks and do, uh, you know, we execute as, as, as well as, as possible. You still won't race as fast on a, in a 30 degree human environment as you would in a 15 degree you know, overcast, comfortable environment. That's just, there's, there's, uh, you know, physics is kind of a bitch. Like it's, it's going to, it's going to limit performance to a certain extent and you can, uh, mitigate some of those factors, but they will, you, you can never expect to have the same kind of mechanical output, especially for a long race, uh, in hot conditions as you will in cool conditions. So, um, correct pacing is actually a really important, um, a really important strategy when you're facing with an event in those in those conditions, knowing too that your competition's dealing with the exact same exact same scenario. Yeah, no, no question. Yeah, pacing's huge in that. Yeah, because you're now you're you're adding in the rate of heat uh, rise, right? Exactly. Because the faster that you're going in the pacing sort of situation, if it's if it's inappropriate to your ability to bail um, the bucket, 
then yeah, you're going to, um, yeah, it's really going to be influential and in how quick you get to the point where you're going to really have to diminish the, the power output or the running speed. And if nothing else, I think you've come up with a quote of the day as well. Physics is a bitch. So <laughs> it's one of my, it's one of my go-tos <laughs> and it's so true. <laughs> it's heartless, very heartless. All right. Um, yeah, this has been a fantastic discussion. I can't, I can't reiterate that enough. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Um, it's been really enlightening, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of questions from some of our listeners that'll come up. Um, so, if if anyone has any any heat transfer or thermal regulation questions, I'd encourage them to at least send them into us, and maybe we can filter so that we don't get too many over to Paul. But uh, having some of those answers, I think, would be pretty pretty useful for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, ha happy to field some. That'd be great. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, our, our pleasure, Paul. And then uh, on your side, I know we uh, we talked about your hit science, the book, and the um, the course. Is there anything else that you want us to promote for you? Uh, well, the I mean, with the within the context of this, there there is a, if the people want to check out Flow Bottle, that's uh, that's at f l o e bottle dot com. So check out Flow Bottle, and there's all the science, and you can and there's links to the to purchasing the Flow Bottle itself. So. Um, I think we have four Olympic teams that are actually using that for for Beijing. So they've you know actually had large orders. So we're pretty uh, I don't know we're pleased with that. And yeah, if if you uh, if you're keen, grab check out a bottle. Yeah, I think I may have missed my uh, my Christmas list already. What Olympic are we on? It's Tokyo, isn't it? <laughs> Tokyo, Tokyo. Still very hot, right? Like everyone's talking about how how stinky hot Tokyo is going to be this um, this time around. Well, yeah, they're saying hottest, hottest on record. It, um, substantially, it'll be the hottest on record. It's is absolutely ridiculous. Some of the, some of the reports that have come out. It's going to be fa fascinating. Like, you know, the I think we're going to see probably, you know, sadly some of the biggest falls. Uh, and hopefully, there's no there's no uh, consequences and stuff. But like, yeah, we've been talking about you know the Sarah True and the the Johnny Brownlee and stuff. I, I, I dare say we'll. We'll see one or two or more of those types of situations throughout the games. So the takeaway for the rest of us who are not going to Tokyo is buy your flow bottles now because Paul will absolutely be sold out in before Tokyo because all of the Olympic athletes are going to be snagging them up. <laughs> well, we'll make some more. Deal. Uh, so thank you, as always, uh, for tuning in, everyone. Uh, if you've got questions, as Andrew said, do send them our way. We're uh, happy to answer them. And uh, if you like the show, tell your friends and uh, rate and review us on iTunes.